The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. Um, today we are going to finish up the ninth chapter of Romans. And so we are going to basically finish up what we started last week, the lecture on verses 18 through 33. That won't take us, I don't think, the entire hour. And then I'm going to open the floor to any questions that you may have, because I know this has been a difficult section, as I said, and it has prompted many questions in the minds of several people. And so I want to give you an opportunity to ask those questions, and I'll do my best to answer them. And then when we come back next week, God willing, uh, we will start with Romans chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Romans chapter 9. And while we're going to concentrate on verses 18 through 33, what I want to do is start at verse 14, which sort of sets the context. So Romans chapter 9, verse 14, Paul asks this rhetorical question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles." As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, the righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued it by law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, 
Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul is dealing again with this whole great doctrine of election. He anticipates many of the objections that we have when we come to this doctrine. He anticipates some of the questions that we have when we come to this doctrine, and he attempts to answer those. The first thing he does is he attempts to answer any arguments that people might have that are designed to soften what Paul is saying here. When they say things like, well, when Paul is talking about election here, he's not talking about the election of individuals, he is talking about the election of nations. That's what's represented by Jacob and, and by Abraham and so forth. They're the fathers, they're the patriarchs of a nation. And so they're not really talking about the election of individuals, but the election of individuals who were the fountainheads of nations and representatives of those nations. Paul's answer to that, of course, is that, well, that would be true had it not been for the fact that Pharaoh is mentioned in this passage as well. And Pharaoh is not the fountainhead. He's not necessarily the representative of any particular people. He was simply the ruler, the pagan ruler over the Egyptians. So he said that is not true. Others will argue, well, it's election based on foreknowledge. We talked about that. It's the idea that God looks down the corridors of time and he can see the decisions that people are going to make beforehand. He, after all, is omniscient, and on the basis of what he knows people are going to do, he therefore elects them or he passes them by. The problem with that argument, of course, is that it undercuts the whole notion of grace. Every time you say, well, why am I um, going to be in heaven when my neighbor's not going to be in heaven? It's because I chose Christ. What you do is you take a little bit of the glory away from him. It may not be much, but it does mean that you have contributed something to the process of your salvation. And that undercuts the notion that we are saved entirely by the grace of God, not by virtue of anything that we do. Furthermore, as I pointed out last week, it assumes that everybody starts off in precisely the same position, and we all recognize that that is not true. All of us have certain advantages over others. Some people are more disadvantaged than others. We don't all start off at precisely the same place. Furthermore, that word foreknowledge as it is used here in Romans does not mean to see something before it happens. It's not prescience so much as it is to take note of, to acknowledge beforehand. We also said there's some very important points to remember when it comes to this doctrine of election and reprobation. The first is that reprobation does not mean that God just willy-nilly chooses some for salvation and rejects others. Reprobation simply means that God passes by some and saves others. This is why we say that nobody in this whole great universe is ever going to get injustice from God. We're going to get one of two things. We're either going to get what we deserve from God, that is justice, or we're going to get mercy. But nobody, nobody is going to get injustice. All have sinned, Paul says, and fallen short of the glory of God. Without exception, there's no one, he says, no one who is righteous, no one who seeks God. Moreover, the wages of sin is death. So if we're all sinners, we all deserve death. And he says that God will allow somebody, some people to receive what they deserve. Others will receive what they don't deserve. They will receive mercy. So those are the arguments. 
And then we said it's important as we look at this doctrine to look at it not from man's perspective, but rather to look at it from God's perspective. And that's what Paul is trying to do here in the latter part of chapter 9. We said that he made three contrasts, a contrast between man and God. He said, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? He said, now think about who you are and think about who God is. Who is God? God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one who always was. God has no beginning. He is eternal. God is not bound by time and space in the way that you and I are because we are creatures and he is the creator. He said, so isn't it a little presumptuous for us as mere creatures to accuse God of any kind of unrighteousness? Isn't it a little presumptuous for us to accuse God of being unfair? That's the first contract. What are, what are you compared to God? The psalmist says, when I look at the works of your hand, the stars and the moon, I think, what is man that you are mindful of him? That's the first thing Paul does. Paul then makes a second contrast. Can what is formed say to he who formed it, why did you make me like this? He said, doesn't God, as the sovereign Lord of the universe, have the right to do what he pleases? He can do whatever he wants. Even our rational abilities, our ability to determine right from wrong, fair from, un, or from injustice, even that, he says, is given to us by God. And then the final contrast that he makes, of course, is that contrast that is so powerful, that contrast of the potter and the clay. He says, does not the potter have the right to do with the clay whatever he wants? Wouldn't it be absurd, he says, for the clay to talk back to the potter and say, I don't like the way you've made me, do it over again. He said the potter can do with the clay whatever he wants. Now Paul's conclusion, and this is where we're going to pick up today, Paul's conclusion is simple. It is absurd for mere mortals, for mere creatures to find fault with God. God's ways are higher than our ways as the mountains are higher than the seas. I mean, there's so much that you and I don't understand just about the basics of life, let alone the great mysteries of the universe. Second thing is this. God has sovereignty over the things that he has made. He is the king of the universe. He alone sits on the throne. And we're not talking about some sort of constitutional monarchy. This is not a case where God runs for re-election. God is sovereign over his creatures. Third, his actions are based in his righteous judgments. This is very important. Who is the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong? Who decides what is acceptable and unacceptable? See, the problem for us is that we have grown up with a democratic mindset. And we think that right and wrong, acceptable and unacceptable, is determined by the majority opinion. We vote for these things. Yesterday were the um, off-year elections, and there were a number of very important referendums that were out in many states like Ohio and Pennsylvania and Virginia, major elections taking place there. And we think that because the majority of the voters vote one way, that makes something right or that makes something wrong. But if God is the king of the universe, who determines what is right and what is wrong? 
God does. That's why when we say that people sin, it's not because the culture says that we're sinners. It's because God says that we are sinners. What is a sin? Well, that's right. That's a great way to put it. I mean, that's the way it's described in the New Testament as missing the mark. It's like somebody with, you know, an archer with his arrows and he pulls back the bow and he shoots at the target. And he either hits the target, the bullseye, or he misses it. And it doesn't matter, you've heard the expression, a miss is as good as a mile. It doesn't matter whether he misses it by a few inches or he misses it entirely, it's a miss. There's only one bullseye. But here's the question, the real question is this, who sets the target? See, that's the point. So let me give you a very simple definition of sin. All right? We're all sinners. Sin is doing anything that God forbids. And it's failing to do anything that God commands. That's what sin is. Sin is doing anything that God forbids and it is failing to do anything that God commands. We refer to these as sins of commission and sins of omission. All right? Now, there's a distinction between sin and crime. And this is something that as Americans we need to understand the distinction between the two. They're not the same. A crime is a violation of the laws of man. That's what a crime is. That is not necessarily a sin. There are times when crimes are not sins. And there are times when sins are not crimes. So they're not the same. So for example, it may be a crime to, in some countries, like in Soviet controlled territory and in Russia and in China, it may be a crime to speak openly about Jesus Christ. But that is not a sin. As a matter of fact, in that particular instance, we are expected to actually protest against the law and if necessary, even disobey it. Now, on the other hand, there are times when what is a sin is not a crime. And I would go so far as to say the, the most, I would say, blatant example of this would be the pro-life and abortion debate. I think the scriptures are pretty clear that all of life is sacred, but there was a big referendum in Ohio yesterday for a constitutional amendment to the state constitution saying that women, actually it says that any person who's expecting, which is kind of bizarre in and of itself, but that any person has a right to an abortion. Well, and there were no limits on that. We're not talking about in the first trimester. We're talking up to the moment of delivery. Now, in a former age, that was called infanticide. Now, now that is legal now in Ohio. It's going to be a constitutional change. It's going to be a right. It is not a crime, but it is a sin. All right, so you understand the distinction between the two? A sin is a violation of God's law. A crime is a violation of the laws of men. 
and they are not necessarily the same thing. And so Paul's logical conclusion is that given that fact, because we are all sinners and we have all violated God's law and the penalty for having done that, and because God is the one who is sovereign over all his creatures, it is incumbent upon all of us to turn from our evil ways and to acknowledge him as Savior and to follow him as our Lord. And it is God's sovereign right, if he so chooses, to save some from their sin and to pass by others and leave them in it. Now, Jonathan Edwards was um, perhaps the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. We've produced some, some good Bible scholars, some decent preachers over the centuries, but America is not known for having produced great theologians. That is, people who were really um, insightful in an altogether new way and have, have caused us to look at things in an altogether new way. But Jonathan Edwards is acknowledged as one of those. He is acknowledged as America's greatest theologian. Now, you may not know much about Jonathan Edwards. He was a graduate of Yale University, and he became the president of Princeton University. Uh, he was a brilliant man, but he was first and foremost the pastor of a church. He was a pastor of a church in New Haven, and he took that job very seriously, and he's written some wonderful books. The, 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 the one thing that Jonathan Edwards is remembered for by many people is a famous sermon that he delivered on one occasion entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, that seems to be the only thing that anybody ever remembers, and it doesn't sound very inviting. Um, but I encourage you to go and read it sometime. It had a profound impact on his congregation and on the entire community. And it really is a powerful sermon. But Jonathan Edwards wrote an untitled essay on this whole doctrine of election. Because when he preached it to his congregation, many people were troubled by it in the same way that you and I are troubled by some of the things that Paul is teaching here. But Jonathan Edwards had a unique approach to this. He said, look at it from God's perspective. If God decides to reject some or to pass by some, he said, it really isn't injustice. Actually, he is simply treating them the same way that they treat him. He says, if God were to cast you off, it would match your own treatment of him. And he gives several examples of this. The first one he gives is the failure to think about God. I mean, let's be honest. If God exists, it only stands to reason that he is the most important thing in the universe. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. You and I exist by virtue of his mercy upon us. Every breath we draw is a borrowed gift from the Lord. If the Lord were to decide to, to withhold his grace from us from a, for a single second, we would cease to exist. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe who's called all things into existence. He is the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong, of what is true and what is false, of what is noble and what is ignoble. Well, if that's true, shouldn't our every thought be about God? And yet he said, how many of us actually think about God on a daily basis? And not just perhaps a fleeting thought, but actually concentrate on God, the most important thing in the world? What do we more, mostly spend our money day in and day out? Others fret over their appearance, what I look like or how I'm perceived by other people. 
Many people fret over their daily work. They fret over the grocery store list. They fret over the house getting repaired or the car or whatever it may be. We fret about a great many things. How many of us actually spend as much time as we fret about other things thinking about God? Most of the time, let's just go ahead and admit it, present company included, when we call upon God, we're calling upon God for what? For help in the midst of a crisis. I've sometimes said that we treat God like an aspirin. Nobody thinks about the aspirin bottle in the medicine cabinet until you have a headache. And then when you have a headache, that's the first thing you think about. You, you go to the medicine chest, you open it up, you pop the aspirin, and 20 minutes later you feel very well indeed, and you forget about the aspirin until what? The next crisis. And oftentimes that's the way we treat God. Well, I said, if God only thought about us the way we think about him, would he be justified in passing us by? talked about our tendency to use God. That bottle of aspirin is a great example, but there are others. A pilot who's flying in the plane has a parachute in the back. He never thinks about the parachute until you lose engine number two. And then all of a sudden, there's a thought about that parachute. And then engine number one goes out, and you're gliding, and then all of a sudden that parachute becomes very real to you. You go, you strap it on, and in the nick of time you bail out of the plane and you land on the ground. What's the first thing you do? You cut the cords from the parachute and you walk away from it. Do you ever think about the parachute again now? And he said, that's the way we treat God. We use God for our own means, for our own ends. Well, if God did that with us, would he be justified in casting us off? He said, think about our treatment of God's own son, Jesus Christ. You know, you could hear the name of Jesus Christ frequently on the golf course. <laughs> but it's probably not invoked in praise. Think about how carelessly we use God's name. How carelessly we, we throw it about in spite of the fact that it's a violation of one of the commandments. We fail, your, fail to keep his commandments. You know, anybody that says, I love Jesus Christ and fails to keep his commandments, do they really love him? Uh, that's like the man who says that he loves his wife and he beats her up on a regular basis. The actions speak louder than the words, folks. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what he said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, do we keep his commandments? Do we show our love and devotion for the Lord by the way we live our lives? If God were to treat us the way we would treat him, would he be justified in casting us off? Or how about the way that we treated Jesus Christ at the time of his death, his crucifixion? Remember that old Spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? We sing it every Good Friday. Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb and we all sit there and we sing it with gusto? Well, were you there? They say, well, I wasn't there. It was 2,000 years ago. Of course I wasn't there. Ah, but you see, the whole point of that song is that we were all there. 
We have a wonderful hymn, one of my favorites, by a professor at my old alma mater, Virginia Seminary. His name was Walter Russell Bowie. And the hymn goes like this, Lord Christ, when first thou camest to earth, upon a cross they bound thee, and mocked thy saving kingship then by thorns with which they crowned thee. And still our wrongs do weave thee now new thorns to pierce that steady brow and robe of sorrow place around thee. It's very easy to say, Lord Christ, when first thou camest to earth upon a cross, they bound thee. They mocked thy saving kingship with thorns with which they crowned thee, but that wasn't me. But he goes on to say, and this is the most powerful part, but still our wrongs do weave thee now, new thorns to pierce that steady brow. Every time we sin, every time we break God's heart, we crucified Christ all over again. The way we treated Jesus Christ, would God be justified in casting us off? How about our treatment of others? Jesus said, when you did it not to the least of these, you did it not to me. How often do we have compassion toward those who are less fortunate than ourselves? How often do we actually pray for our enemies? Because Jesus says that's what we're supposed to do. Not only pray for those who are our friends, we're to care for our neighbors. Who are our neighbors? Well, Jesus answered that with a parable on one occasion, the parable of the Good Samaritan. What was so shocking about that particular parable is that to Jews, the idea of a good Samaritan was an oxymoron. <laughs> the only good Samaritans were dead Samaritans. Do we love those who are our enemies, those people that we cannot stand? You know that woman <laughs> or that man that just has the ability to get under your skin. Do you love them? That man when you're coming across the bridge and ready to turn and you're at the stoplight and they're there begging for money, do you have compassion on them? Or do you think to yourself, get a job? If God treated us the way we treat others, would he be justified in casting us off? How about the way we treat ourselves? Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, but do we really care for them? Now, we're living in a culture in which some people actually worship their bodies. <laughs> I realize that. But it's not just the way we, we, we treat our bodies, it, it's the way we regard ourselves. I mean, let's be honest. If spiritual things are of the utmost importance, if one day we're all going to stand before Christ and have to give an account of our lives, doesn't it only stand to reason that we ought to be careful about these things, that we ought to be careful about our souls? Jesus asked the question, he says, what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world, if he's successful in the eyes of the world, Johnny Sturr sometimes points out to me, he said, if you look at the back of the hearse, there's no trailer hitch. Nobody takes it with them. How much are you going to leave behind when you die? All of it. That's how much you're going to leave behind. All of it. In the Middle East, they have a wonderful saying, there are no pockets in a burial shroud. Do we neglect our souls? The nourishment that comes from God's word, from prayer, from prayer, from fellowship. Do we neglect ourselves so concerned about our bodies that we do not concern with our souls? One part of us that is eternal. 
Well, if we don't care about our souls, would God be justified in not caring about our souls and casting us off? He says, if you take a look at the way we treat God, treat others, treat ourselves, how can we find fault with God if he were to cast us off? He would only be treating us as we treat ourselves and as we treat others. The fact that God does not do that, Paul is saying, the fact that God does have mercy on some shows that he is indeed gracious. Jonathan Edwards came to this conclusion. The fact that the very gospel is proclaimed, the gospel of salvation, shows that God is gracious and merciful. The very fact that God's goal is not to condemn all but to save some shows that he is gracious and loving. The fact that there is the good news, and the gospel is good news. The Greek word is evangelion. It means glad tidings. You remember when the angels appeared to the shepherds on that first Christmas? They said, fear not, for we bring you what? Glad tidings of great joy which shall be for all people. That's what the gospel is. It's not bad news. It's good news. It's glad tidings. It's about deliverance. The very fact that God has given us the Bible. I mean, the Bible is a precious gift. Some years ago, I went and I visited um, St. Catherine's Monastery out in the middle of the Egyptian desert. It's at the base of Mount Sinai. And I remember going into the church, which is this beautiful Orthodox church, but I remember them having a reliquary over there, and I went over and looked in the reliquary, and there was St. Catherine's finger. If you go to Europe, you see that sort of thing everywhere, you know. I mean, poor Peter, pieces of Peter are scattered all over the place. There's a Peter's kneecap over here, and Peter's this, that, or the other thing over there. And people make these relics. Let me tell you something. The most precious relic left on earth is the Word of God. And it's not a dead letter. It is the means by which God continues to speak to us today across time and space, speaking to our hearts. You know, people sometimes say to me, I just wish that God would speak to me. And my answer to that is always, are you reading his word? <laughs> the very fact that it has been given to us. I love the way John Wesley put it. John Wesley put it this way. He said, I want to know one thing. He said, I want to know the way to heaven. I want to know how to land safe on that happy shore. How many of you want to know the way to heaven? To the peace which passes human understanding. To that place of joy and satisfaction where God himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. How many of you want to go there? Those of you who are not raising your hands, that's not a good sign. I'm just going to be honest with you. <laughs> We all want to go there. That's what we're all searching for. Everybody in this world is searching for precisely the same thing, for peace, for contentment. But as the old song says, they're looking for it in all the wrong places. So Wesley said, I want to know one thing. I want to know the way to heaven. I want to know how to land safe on that happy shore. He said, thanks be to God, he has written the way down in a book. He said, oh, give me that book and make me a man of that book.
The very fact that God has given preachers to proclaim the gospel is a sign of his grace and his mercy. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. So rather than object to God's plans and God's graciousness, ought we not, Jonathan Edwards says, to be thankful for the fact that God shows us grace and mercy. He doesn't have to save anybody. The fact that he saves anybody is a sign that he is gracious and merciful indeed. And everybody else will get exactly what they deserve. So if you're a believer today, the response should not be, well, I don't think, no accusation of God. The response ought to be, to God alone be the glory. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. I don't deserve it. If you gave me what I deserve, I'd be lost forever. The fact that I have been brought out of darkness into your marvelous light, that is your grace and your mercy. And I praise you and thank you for it from the bottom of my heart. That should be our proper response to all that God does. For he's infinitely just. And he is gracious and merciful. Indeed, mercy is his name. Well, that brings us to the end of Romans chapter 9. And I did that all in 35 minutes. So that leaves us with 25 minutes for questions. I want to give you the opportunity to do that. Ask questions that you have about this doctrine, about Romans chapter 9 or the epistle of the Romans. Or if you have any other questions, well, I'll give it a shot. But I don't want to end this section without giving you an opportunity to ask any questions that you have. Because I do recognize it is, in many ways, the most difficult section, not just of the epistle to the Romans, but it really is one of the most difficult sections in all the Bible. Where? Right there? That's what you want? Okay, there it is. Yeah. This whole idea of election on the basis of foreknowledge. In other words, God makes the decision as to who's going to be saved, who's going to be numbered among the elect on the basis of his foreknowledge. That is to say, he looks down through the ages, through the corridors of time, and he sees those who will accept him, and he sees those who will reject him. And on the basis of the fact that he knows they will receive him, he elects them to salvation. Now, Paul says that can't be true because that undercuts the notion of grace. And it assumes that everybody's in the same position. Now, we, we, we all realize that we're not all in the same position. 
Uh, we recognize this not only in terms of salvation, but in terms of life. There are certain people who start off with advantages that other people do not have. If you come from a wealthy family, you start off with certain advantages that other people do not have. If you start off with, a, you know, with an education, you start off with an advantage that other people do not have. If you start off in a country that has good health care, you're starting off with an advantage that other people do not have. And the same thing is true when it comes to salvation. We all recognize that certain people have more intellectual capacity than other people do. And therefore, it undercuts the notion of grace. And it is not really fair because it assumes that everybody is in the same position and they're not. Yes. Yep. Juanita. When Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen, was he talking about disciples and leadership? Was it, is it possible that he could have had called out to all men to love the world, but that he did choose? I mean, I, I still love to get a little trouble with when God so loved them. Yeah. 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 No, and, and there is the, the question is, you know, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, it doesn't say he only loved the elect. Um, and, and the flip side of that is that Jesus also says, many are called but few are chosen. Is that a reference only to the disciples or is that a reference to humanity at large? Is that a fair? Well, I, I think first of all, um, you know, the, the problem with confining it only to the disciples is that there again you have election. Maybe there would have been lots of people that would have liked to have been Jesus' disciples, but he chose them. In fact, he says, you did not choose me, I chose you. Why? What, what, did he see something in Peter? Did he see something in James or John or Andrew? Or We don't know the answer to that. It is to some degree a mystery, but there's no question about that. Jesus chose them. They did not choose him. Now, what we can say is that the message of the gospel goes out to the whole world. All right? The message of the gospel goes out to the whole world. But some reply to it and some do not. Those who reply to it are those who have what? Have had the Holy Spirit already at work in their lives. This is what we call provenient grace. God is at work in their lives. So the message goes out to all people. That is the great comfort to me as a preacher. If I thought that the salvation of the people who are in my charge was dependent upon my ability to convey the message with power and with clarity, I don't think I could handle the burden. What's my job as a minister of the gospel? To throw out the word liberally, like the sower in the parable. And some of that seed's going to fall on rocky soil, the hard path. Some of it's going to fall on thorny soil. Some of it's going to fall on soil that is scorched by the sun, and some of it is going to fall on fertile soil. That's one of my favorite parables for the simple reason that what that parable teaches us is that it's not about the power of the seed, which is the word of God, 
And it's not even about the ability of the sower. If you've ever seen the um, symbol for Simon & Schuster Publishing Company, it's a sower reaching into his haversack and throwing out the seed. That's how you throw out the seed. It's not about the power of the seed or even the ability of the sower. What that's really about is what? The fertile nature of the soil. And who determines the fertile nature of the soil? God alone. My job is not to be successful. Nobody's going to hear on that last day, well done, good and successful servant. You brought two million into the kingdom of God. God requires us to be faithful. I think one of the things we have to get through our mind, and this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about God is God and man is man, and God's ways are higher than our ways, more than the mountains are higher than the seas. One of the things that we have to get through is, we, we, we say, if I understand it, I'll obey it. And God says, you should obey it whether you understand it or not, because my ways are higher than your ways. St. Anselm said it was fetus quorens intellectum. That's Latin for faith-seeking understanding. I believe in order that I might understand, not I understand in order that I might believe. It's the other way around. God has given us enough to trust him. He doesn't answer all of our questions, but he gives us enough that we can trust him. And on that basis, we are to follow him unquestioning. We are to follow him and obey him even in the midst of the things that we do not understand. I, I know there's going to be a great Q&A session when we get to heaven. And there are going to be lots of questions that I've got. But I wonder how many of those questions are going to be answered. You know, when we get to heaven, we are going to still be creatures. Some people think that when they get to heaven, all their questions are going to be answered. I don't believe that personally. I don't believe that because we are going to be glorified creatures, but we're still going to be creatures. We're going to spend eternity uncovering and discovering new things about God. It's going to be a great adventure. What I do think is some of the questions that puzzle us now probably won't be of any consequence when we get there. And I think that's how we have to walk. We have to walk by sight, not faith, not by sight, even in the midst of things that we don't understand. Jimmy. That we are numbered among the elect? Yes. yes. Absolutely. Um, otherwise, we would be thrown about um, by um, all kinds of fear and anxiety. We would never be able to be of any use to God. That was Martin Luther, quite frankly, prior to his understanding of the great doctrine of justification, which was revealed to him in this epistle to the Romans. Um, Luther was trying to follow God, but, but he was fearful that he wasn't measuring up. And he had a very tender conscience, Luther did. He had a bright mind, but he had a very tender conscience. And there were times when he would go into Mass, for example. Remember, he was an Augustinian monk. And he would go into Mass, and he would receive absolution, and he would receive the sacrament, and he'd be going out the door of the chapel, and he'd grab the celebrant by the arm, and he said, you need to hear my confession. 
And everybody hated when Luther showed up for Mass because, you know, he would keep them there for any length of time confessing his sins because he was afraid, fearful. And on one occasion, the priest said to him, Luther, what could you have possibly done? You just had confession. You just had communion. What could you have possibly done between now and then that deserves to be confessed? And Luther's response was, you do not know my heart. So he was always living in fear and anxiety. And quite frankly, at that point in his life, he was of no good to anybody. It wasn't until he came to have the assurance that comes from knowing Christ. So how do you know that you are saved? Well, one way that you know is by your life. Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. Now, don't misunderstand and I'm going to talk about this in the sermon on Sunday because I've got a very interesting parable, the wise and the foolish virgins. We are not saved by anything that we do. We're not saved by our works. We're saved entirely by the grace of God, which is received by faith. But there is a place for good works in the Christian life. The good works are the proof, they're the evidence of our salvation. Now, you might think to yourself, well, I see my sin more clearly now than ever before. That, too, is a sign of true transformation. It's when we begin to draw close to Christ, who is the light of the world, that we begin to see the darkness in our own hearts, the darkness in our own lives. If your sin is more apparent to you today than at any other point in your life, you may have been, you know, sort of oblivious to the sin in your life. You knew you weren't a perfect person, but you never thought of yourself as a particularly wretched person. But if all of a sudden you're beginning to see yourself as a lost person and you're only hoping in Jesus Christ, that's the very fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in you because part of his job is to convict you of righteousness and the need for repentance. Now, when I say good works, I am not talking about the fact that we look over our lives and say, well, I have arrived. I am perfect. Luther said, we're simo ustus et peccator. We're at the same time sinners and yet justified. But what he is saying is that we should see a progression in our lives. We should see a movement where we're moving more toward Christ. We're more concerned with the sin in our lives. We're more desirous of being like Jesus. We should be able to see the Holy Spirit producing in us the character of Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control. Does that mean we have arrived? No. I struggle with those things. But if you look back over the course of your life and you don't see a progression, you don't see yourself growing, then there's probably a problem. But if you do see a growth, you do see a desire, you do see your sins, and you don't just acknowledge them, but you bewail them. You've heard me say this many times before. The child who gets his hand caught in the cookie jar may be sorry that he got caught. Well, that doesn't mean he's sorry that he did it. It's one thing to acknowledge your sins, and this is why I love the old right one language, which is now the language. Isn't that nice? We acknowledge and we what? Bewail. And when that's evident in your life, that is the proof that God is at work in you. 
It may not have arrived, but the Holy Spirit is at work in you. A new perspective, a new birth, a new set of priorities. That's the evidence that God is present in your life. So we're not saved by our works, but they certainly are the evidence of it. Uh, I would question your thoughts about faith and understanding. Now, the scientific method says you ought to understand what, 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 what's going on with this particular issue. And then, after you understand that, then you put some trust and faith in that as a remedy or solution to your problem. Right. Now, John Stott says, he wrote a book called The Mind Matters. And the mind conjures up the business of scientific method or thinking or reasoning or understanding. Sure. Uh, so then he says at some point in that book, The Mind Matters, he says, uh, faith is trust in the character and promises of God. But it seems to me like you've got to understand God's character and promises by your observance of life, by reading the Bible, understanding theological ideas. Uh, See, to me, like the mind's got to be part of it before you can really have trust. Well, there's no question about the fact that the mind has a part to play in it. In fact, Paul says here in Romans, and we're not there yet, but he, we'll get there. He's, he says, you know, he talks about, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So there's no question about that. My only point is this. What the scripture teaches is that God has revealed himself to us. He has given us enough for us to trust him. But there are still things that we do not understand. There are certain things that he calls us to do, certain ways that we are to live our lives, and we may not understand why there are prohibitions here in this area and there are allowances here in this area. And, and we may say, well, until I can understand why he has made those prohibitions, I'm not going to obey them. That is willful disobedience. So there certainly is a place for the mind. The mind plays a part. I mean, that's one of the things that you've heard me say many times before. Um, the problem for Thomas was not that Thomas doubted. It was not that Thomas required more evidence in order to believe. You'll remember that when Jesus was resurrected... Um, Jesus appeared to the disciples, Thomas wasn't with them. And when he appears, all of a sudden, they say, oh, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, look, unless I can take my hands and put them in the hole in his side, unless I can take my fingers and put them in the nail prints, I will not believe. Simple as that. The problem was not that Thomas was requiring evidence in order to believe. Christianity is an evidence-based religion. We believe that these events happen in time, in space, in history. And if they didn't happen in time, in space, in history, then we're lost forever. It's just pie-in-the-sky, ethereal, wishful thinking. The problem was not that Thomas required evidence in order to believe. The promise was that even though he had been, the problem was that even though he'd been given ample evidence, he still refused to believe. I mean, think about Thomas. Over the course of the previous three years, what had he seen? Well, he had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He had seen Jesus cleanse lepers, open the eyes of the blind, turn water into wine, calm the sea of Galilee. He had seen Jesus take five loaves of bread, two small fish, 
and feed a multitude of 5,000. And he had heard Jesus say repeatedly over the course of those previous three years, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, and on the third day I will rise again. Now, you ask yourself, how much more evidence does the man need in order to trust? So it's not a case where God doesn't give us evidence. Of course he does. But having revealed himself to us then in the midst of things that our finite minds cannot always comprehend on the basis of what he's already provided for us, which is more than ample, we are expected to trust him in the midst of the things that we do not understand. And it's not a problem with asking questions. As I said, it's perfectly fine when you're going through a tough time to ask God, what is happening here? What, what am I supposed to learn from this? I've got this bad report from the doctor. What, what, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What, there, there's nothing wrong with that kind of questioning because there are many things that we do not understand. We see through a glass darkly. The problem is when we say, God, you have no right to do this to me. The reality is, Paul says, God has a right to do whatever God wants to do because he's God and you're not. And this is something that we have to get through our minds. God owes us nothing. As long as you think God owes you something, as long as you're operating on that basis, you'll never understand the doctrine of grace. Yes. I was just going to say, it seems that God um, rewards our faith in His Word, even when we don't understand, by giving us more light. Like as we receive light, we get more light if we if we accept. Yes, absolutely. Let me make something very clear here: biblical faith is not blind trust, all right? It's not blind trust. It's not based on anything. That, that, that's credulity. That's, that's wishful thinking. And that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that God gives us enough light for the step that we're on. And the faith is being willing. See, what we want to do is we want to see the end from the beginning. I, I want to see how this is going to work out. And if you can see how your life's going to work out and how the problems are going to work out, you're not walking by faith, you're walking by sight. You don't need faith when you know how it's going to end. It's like when I told Kristen, I wanted, this is years ago, I said, I want to go see that movie, The Titanic. And she said, well, I don't. And I said, why not? Everybody's talking about it. She goes, we know how it ends. <laughs> and she was right, doesn't end well. It always ends the same way. It always ends the same way. We know how it ends. But you see, we're not talking about walking by sight. We're walking by faith. God is saying, I will work all things together for your good. If you love me and you're the called according to my purpose, I will work it out. And we say, well, how? And he says, just one step at a time. I'm going to give you enough step, enough light for the step that you're on. Well, I'd like to have enough light for the next three steps. Well, sorry, I'm God and you're not. <laughs> this is how you learn to trust me. You learn to trust me, and as you learn to trust God, you grow in him. You learn to trust him 
more. We trust him on the basis of his past trustworthiness. I think I've given you an illustration of this before. When um, um, we were on vacation one year, and my son Jackson, who's now a Marine officer and does all sorts of, you know, things that I would regard as very scary. But I'll never forget when he was a little boy, he was um, very thin, very kind of sort of small and, and bony. And we were at a hotel which had a diving board. You know, you don't have a lot of those anymore. You know, those diving boards are dangerous and all that sort of thing. But um, this place had a diving board. And he wanted to go off the diving board. He was watching all these other kids go off the diving board. His big brother was going off the diving board. And he had just learned how to swim. And he was not a strong swimmer. And he wanted to go off the diving board so bad. So finally, I relented. I said, okay, go ahead, go off the diving board. And he went and got in line. It was a hot day. There were a bunch of kids there. They were all in line. He waits in line. The other kids jump in. They get back in line. He gets up there on the diving board. And all of a sudden, it's a really different perspective from up there. And I remember it as though it was yesterday. He got to the end of that diving board and he looks down and his little toes are curled over the end of the board. And I can see his lower lip begin to quiver. And the kids behind him are like, jump, jump, go on, do it, jump, jump. And he's looking back at them and he's looking down at that water and he's saying, oh. And I'm over on the side of the pool watching him and he says, Daddy, I don't know that I want to do it. And I said, okay, just wait a minute. And I got in the pool, and I'm out there treading water. And I said, Jackson, you jump and I'll catch you. Now, there was no guarantee I was going to catch him. But he jumped, and thanks be to God, I caught him. Now, why did he do that? Because I had proven myself trustworthy in the past, therefore he could trust me for the future. The difference between me and God is that if God says, jump, I'll catch you, he always will. There's no guarantee that I'm going to catch you if you jump in the water. But there's always the guarantee that he will. The only reason my son jumped in, if some other man had been down there saying, jump in, I'll catch you, he could have been the world's greatest swimmer and Jackson would not have jumped. Why? Because he didn't know him. He had no experience with him. But he knew me. And he knew based upon past experience, he could trust me. And on that basis, he took the leap. That's the way it is with God. He gives us enough to trust him even in the midst of the things that we do not. So it's not blind faith. There's ample evidence. But on the basis of that ample evidence, we are to trust him in the midst of the things that we do not understand. And he promises he will be with us even to the end of the world. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that you give us enough light for the step that we're on. You do not leave us in the dark. Perhaps you don't give us enough, as much light as we would like, but you give us enough light. You give us what we need, not always what we want. But it's entrusting you that we grow. It's entrusting you that we begin to have confidence in your ability. 
So, Father, even in the midst of these things that we do not understand, even in the midst of these great may bewilder us and even trouble our hearts, grant us the grace just to trust you, to trust your word, to take this aspirin, swallow it whole, and allow it to work its power in our lives. Help us to follow you today, tomorrow, for the rest of our days until faith shall be sight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thank you.